most people like to understand how most things work. When, let's say, we buy a tool and uh, we want to use it, we want to know how it works. Now, for most of us, usually we are satisfied with, let me understand how to turn it on and how to maneuver it to accomplish what I want it to do. Some things are perhaps too detailed for us to understand fully, and uh, we leave it for the specialists to figure out how the details work. Uh, for example, if you were to buy a vacuum cleaner, and uh, you, may, you may figure out if you just get one of those where you just turn it on and off and know how to maneuver it through the house, you know how it works, you get the work done, and you're happy, and the rest of the family is happy. But perhaps you want to go a little fancier and get one of those electric, self-operating vacuum cleaners. Like, whoa, how does that work? What does it take to set it up, to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do? That's a little more complicated. So trying to understand how an electric, automatic vacuum cleaner works, uh, you definitely want to understand how to set it up so it does what you want it to do. Now, some things are so detailed and so complicated that even though, in general, most people like to understand how things work, we leave it to the specialists. For example, if you understand how to write code and how to write software, like go ask Gary or Colin. You know, they understand how to write code, but don't ask me for that. If you understand how, you want to know how to restore old cars, old classic cars, go and ask Jake Hill how to do that. He will help you understand that. At least we'll give you a, a presentation. In general, we like to understand how things work in general so we know how to use them, how to do them. The one thing we want to make sure we understand how it works in this life is God's salvation. Because if we understand everything else in life, even the deep, complicated things like how to write software, if we understand those things that we leave it to the specialists, and somehow we become specialists in those things and get them, but we don't understand how God's salvation works, we will be the most miserable people for not only all of life, but all of eternity. And this morning, God's Word will give us instruction about how God's salvation works. So that no matter how complicated you think it is, you will have an understanding of what God requires of you and I. So if you're not a Christian, I hope you would consider today the call of salvation. If you are a Christian, that you would consider how God works in salvation 
so that you may both conf be confident in his power to do so and also recognize and realize our responsibility in this spread of the gospel message. I encourage you today to open God's Word to Romans chapter 10 as we will read and continue our sermon series to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, we'll be reading from verse 5 to verse 21. We get to hear more about how God's salvation works so that we may know how to respond to it. And not assume that just because it's too complicated and we don't get it and we don't understand it, that somehow we'll get a pass on that final day. Here is the nature of God's salvation and what God requires of us. The word of the Lord from Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying and asking God to speak to his word, his word to us. Let's pray.
Father, this is your word that we have heard. And we are in awe of your gracious, sovereign will to show yourself to those who did not ask of you. But we are sober at the reality that there are some towards whom you hold out your hands continually, and yet they remain disobedient and contrary. Father, we pray that in our gathering today, that you would show yourself powerful to reveal yourself and save. We pray that you would use this word to draw people to yourself in a saving way. Help me to preach your word. Help us to hear it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. How does God's salvation work? We have been working through the book of Romans, and particularly the last previous two sermons, we've been in chapter 9 and part of chapter 10. Paul is working in the section of the book of Romans where he is baffled on one side, distraught on the other, why the Israelites, the nation who bears the name of God, those who self-profess themselves to be God's people, those about whom the Lord himself has called to be his people in the Old Testament, why they have not believed in Jesus. Why they continue to stay far from God and have rejected the message about Jesus. The overarching message in these chapters that Paul is bringing is that it is not a failure on God's side that Israel has failed. The word of God has not failed, even if many in Israel have failed to believe in Christ. Paul reminded us in chapter 9 that God's people exist because of God. They come into existence through God's word, through his promise. They come into existence through his election. They come into existence through his undeserved mercy. They come into existence through his sovereign will. The existence of God's people is not based on people, but on God. At the same time, Paul wants us to know that the Israelites' failure to believe in God is attributed to their stumbling over Christ. Instead of trusting in the provision God made and gave them for their salvation, instead of embracing that provision, receiving it, trusting in Christ, they have stumbled over him to their peril, 
instead of establishing their righteousness by trusting in Christ, they determined to establish their righteousness by trusting in their own performance of the law, of God's law. And thus they failed. And their failure is a warning for all of us who might feel tempted to establish our right standing with God based on our performance, on our effort, on our even initiative. In our text, Paul continues to expose why the, why the Israelites failed. But in this process of explaining why the Israelites failed, Paul highlights the positive part of how God's salvation works. And in the midst of learning about why Israel failed, Paul wants us to understand how this salvation works and is available for anyone who would hear it. Paul, in this passage, unfolds for us the nature of God's salvation. And it is this. Uh, here's a summary of what, how this passage that we've just read contributes to Paul's overall argument. God's salvation of sinners is his sovereign work. Yet humans respect, remain responsible. God's salvation of sinners is his sovereign work. Yet humans remain responsible. Responsible, you say, to what? For what? Responsible to respond. And you might say, why? How is it possible that God is sovereign in his work of saving sinners and at the same time, you and I, every one of us, all humanity is responsible for how they respond to this gospel. The answer will be given in two ways, in two answers, two parts. The first one is in verses 5 through 15. The second one in verses 16 through 21. And the short of the Short answer to why is it that God's salvation of sinners is his sovereign work, yet humans remain responsible? Why? The first one is because God's salvation is here. Because God's salvation is here. Therefore, we remain responsible. The second, why is it that humans remain responsible? Is because God's salvation solicits a response. God's salvation solicits a response. So let's unpack these two parts. How is it that God is sovereign in salvation and yet humans remain responsible? Because God's salvation is here. In verses 5 through 15, Paul makes several powerful claims about God's salvation. God's salvation is here in the following ways. First of all, Paul says that God's salvation is near you. We see this in verse 6. But before he gets to verse 6, Paul unpacks for us a contrast between a salvation or a righteousness based on the law and a righteousness based on faith. In verse 5, he speaks about the righteousness based on faith 
and says, this, God, this righteousness based on faith, what does it say? Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on, on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This comes from Leviticus chapter 18. This is one of the ways, one, the, the first way that God revealed to Moses the righteousness that is based on the law, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is part of God's word. This command remains true. This ray of righteousness remains true. The problem is we have all broken the law. And for any and every one of us, this way of obtaining our right standing with God is already not an option anymore because all of us have already broken God's law. If this is the only righteousness that is available to us, then all of us would be doomed to perdition, to eternal damnation forever and ever. But in God's sovereign mercy, this is not the only way of obtaining God's righteousness. Because Paul goes on and speaks to the righteousness that is based on faith. And he says in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. God's righteousness, God's salvation is near you. These words, if you have paid attention to the reading that happened earlier in our service, these words are actually taken by the Apostle Paul from Moses' last sermon that he ever gave before sending off the people into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses gave these words to, to the second generation of these Israelites. And we find this at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And Paul explains what Moses was actually pointing to, forward to. Now we must understand that the book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the second generation, given a second time, because the first generation have failed. They have disobeyed God. Moses wrote at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, he said to them in chapter 9, pretty powerfully, he said to them, listen, you're about to go into the land, into the promised land. But it is not, he says, do not say into your heart that it is because of my righteousness that I'm going to the promised land. Read, when you get home, read chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Moses says to the people, do not say that it is because of my righteousness that I'm going into the land. He says, not at all. You're going into, a into this promised land even though you have been a rebellious and stubborn people. 
Moses makes it very clear from the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy to the second generation, they're not entering the promised land because of their righteousness. And now at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives his last sermon. And he's telling them at the beginning of this sermon that they will break God's covenant. Moses predicts that they will actually be exiled. It's not just a warning. It's a prophetic word. Because Moses says to them, after you will be exiled, after all the curses of this covenant will come upon you. Now imagine the, the hopeful message for, for the second generation entering the promised land, and they were told at the beginning of the book, you're entering in this promised land not because of your righteousness. You have been rebellious from the beginning. At the end of the book, Moses says, listen, you're entering the promised land, but you will be exiled. You will be taken out of it. You will be pulled out of this land because you will break God's law. You will break his covenant. They would be not only the recipients of all the curses of the covenant, but they will be taken out and destroyed. Not a very positive message before entering the promised land. And yet, Moses told the generation of the Israelites that even after the exile, God will work powerfully on his own initiative to restore them, to bring life back into them, to bring them back into the land, to restore them from all the nations from which they will have been scattered. And God will work in their lives to put his word into their hearts so that they will obey and love him from their hearts. The promise of that future reality when they will love their God from their hearts will not be an impossibility for them. A time will come, Moses says, after the exile, a time will come when obedience from the heart will not be far from them, when God's word will be near them, when God's word will be on their lips and even in their hearts. And listen, I want to read again the same passage uh, our brother Andy read earlier. Listen to how Moses speaks about that promise, that future promise. For this commandment, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us? that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This is the promise that Moses gave to his people about what God will do when he will restore them and bring them back from the exile. And Paul takes that promise 
from Moses' last sermon and explains how that promise pointed to Christ. A time will come when God's people will respond obediently to God because someone will come down from heaven to do what they could not have done on their own. Christ is the one who would come down from heaven. And Paul says, he did. He has already come. Christ is the one who would come out of the abyss. The Greek version of the Hebrew text. And Christ did when God raised him from the dead. Christ's incarnation and Christ's resurrection is what the law, what Moses pointed to in Deuteronomy 30. Paul gives us an explanation of the promises of that last sermon that started with that very grim reality that God's people will break God's law. They will break God's covenant. They will be destroyed. They will be taken out of the land. Nevertheless, God will work sovereignly to bring them back, to restore them. And when he will do so, when he will do so, what God commands them, they will be able to do because God's salvation will be near them. So what Moses wrote about through God's command in Deuteronomy 30 is now fulfilled, Paul says, in the word of faith about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He came down to fulfill and do all that God required. And Jesus is the one who rose up from the dead, came from the abyss to do that which none of us could do, overcome the penalty of death which we deserved. The point is, God's salvation is near you because of Jesus. God's salvation is accessible. It's no longer a far-reaching reality. It's no longer just a promise about the future. It is a promise about the present. It is no longer a human impossibility. Do you believe this? God's salvation is here in the sense that it is finally near you and I. But it doesn't just stay near you and I. Listen to how it progresses, how, how this gospel, this salvation is actually unfolding. Look again at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. The nearness of God's word is so near that it's not just outside of us, like in your face. It's in us. In our mouth. And it doesn't even stop there. It's in our heart. God's salvation brings God's word into our hearts. God's salvation brings God's word into our hearts. That is how near God's salvation gets to us. This is the amazing part about God's salvation. It makes God's word 
become part of us. To, to make that word lodge in the depths of our being, in the core of our existence, God's word comes to be part of our hearts when God's salvation is here. Friends, this means that it's not enough for God's word to be near us or even to be on our mouths. It must be in our hearts. Everything else in this text will actually unpack the meaning of this incredible reality that God's salvation is so near that it is into our hearts. This is a promise that God made explicitly in the New Covenant, that God will work through His Holy Spirit to put His Word into our hearts. But the surprising part is that this promise was first uttered by Moses on the last sermon he gave before the people of Israel went to the promised land. They went to the promised land as a rebellious people. That's Deuteronomy 9. They went into the promised land knowing that they will break the covenant because on their own, they could not do it. But they went to the promised land with this amazing promise that God, nevertheless, will work to restore them. And when, what, when God will bring that restoration, God will put His word, His command, so near that it will be on their lips and in their hearts. And Paul says, this is now fulfilled in the word of faith that we proclaim in Jesus. Do you see the beauty of what God is proclaiming and doing? Even from the beginning of Moses, from the beginning of the nation of Israel, God has always intended for his salvation to be in, in this way, that he would put his word into people's hearts. How do we know when God's word has become now part of our hearts? How do we know when God puts his word into our hearts? Well, the first visible sign of that operation on God's part, the first visible sign that we experience is that we proclaim, we profess this word with our mouths. Our mouths speak what's in our hearts. This is why Paul, in this passage, after declaring this wonderful reality of verse 8, that now God's Word is near you, on your, in your mouth, in your heart, Paul begins in verses 9 through 13 to unpack the, the importance of confessing Christ with your mouth. But a caution needs to be given from the beginning. It's true that people can pay lip service to God. God often confronted his people in the Old Testament about worshiping him only with the exterior, only with their lips, without their hearts being conformed to his will. It is possible to confess Christ with your lips and the, and the heart not to be changed. But it is impossible for the heart to be changed and for you not to confess him with, his, with the mouth. When the heart is changed, when the Word of God penetrates into the depths of our being, the first visible sign of that is that we begin confessing with our mouth. 
This is why in verses 9 through 13, Paul helps us see the dynamics of confessing with our mouths and believing with our hearts. The public confession is the first outward sign of a believing heart. Look at verse 9 and 10. If you, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh, friends, this is the amazing nearness of God's salvation. The public confession of Christ's lordship is now available to all who believe. And the heart that believes that God raised Jesus from the dead and the heart that confesses with a mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, He's the Master, He's a sovereign God, that heart, that mouth, professing and believing together is going to be saved. Salvation comes to all those who profess the Lordship of Christ and believe that God resurrected him from the dead. Do you believe this? Have you made a public profession of faith in Christ if you have believed this reality? Now let me clarify a misunderstanding of these verses. Some people take these verses to assume that if someone has made a profession of faith once in their life, uh, then they are saved uh, no matter what and how they continue to live their lives. Uh, some parents might even say this about their children. My child is not walking with the Lord, but I know that he or she is saved because they made a public profession of faith when they were six and they got baptized. And they take assurance of salvation for their children based on these very passages, these, these words, these verses from Romans 10, 9 and 10. But Romans, 9, Romans 10, 9 and 10 does not teach that God's salvation is based on an isolated, once-upon-a-time profession of faith. Such a view is flawed, and here's why. The confession of faith with a mouth is evidence of a heart that believes in the resurrection of Jesus and that he is Lord. And all of that together, this package of confessing with a mouth and believing with a heart, is actually the unfolding that God's word has penetrated the heart. Because verses 9 and 10 are an explanation of verse 8. A mere confession with a mouth or even an initial belief without the word of God taking root in our hearts is meaningless. All the amazing promises, verses 9 through 13, are an explanation of verse 8 where God's word penetrates a heart and dwells in it. When we embrace God's righteousness by faith in Jesus, God's word is so near to us that it's not only in our mouths but also in our hearts and it remains there permanently. 
If, it, if there's no permanency, if there's no perseverance, it means it probably was superficial, spurious. So if you're a Christian, ask yourself, do you have a skewed view of conversion, of, of salvation, based on these verses taken out of context? Do you embrace an easy believism that leaves people assured of salvation on a isolated, once upon a time, profession of faith? Oh, friends, our faith and verbal confession is evidence that God's salvation has brought His Word into our hearts. And this is the amazing news, that this salvation is a permanent salvation where the Word of God has been brought in to our hearts by the Spirit. God's Word is brought into our hearts by the Spirit of God. That's what it means, that God's salvation is here. It's near you, but it's not just near you, it's in you. But it doesn't stop there. God's salvation is here, not only in terms of proximity, in terms of depth, it's also here in terms of width. God's salvation is available to all who call on him. And this is the amazing great news of this salvation. The promise that one who believes with a heart becomes justified and that one who confesses with a mouth is saved are really two facets of the same reality and both promises emphasize the word everyone or anyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Anyone and everyone who believes, anyone and everyone who confesses, they could be saved. These promises come from, from the book of Joel and from the book of Isaiah. In both, the emphasis on the fact, is on the fact that this salvation that is near you and in you is also available for every one of you, for every one of us, for you and I. Paul tells us that the Lord is Lord of all and that he is gracious to dispend his grace on all who call on him. No one is too far off. The Lord is Lord of all for all those who call on him for salvation. My dear friend, let me ask you, have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you called on him to save you? God's salvation is not too complicated. Yes, it is complex. Especially as we wrestle with the doctrine of election. Especially as we wrestle with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It is complex. But it's here for you in this word. So that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're not yet a Christian... May I ask you, what's holding you back? What is holding you back from calling on the name of the Lord to save you? Perhaps you struggle with thinking that you are too far off. Friends, no one is too far off from God's salvation through Jesus. Perhaps you're thinking, I'm already good. 
I think I can do this on my own. Oh, friends, this is where the Jews stumbled. Don't fall on the same rock of thinking that you can establish your right standing with God on your own performance of God's word. You and I and every one of us needs Jesus to make us right with God. If you would like to know more of what it means to call on the name of the Lord, let me just say simply this. You can do so even right now as you hear these words in your heart. Call out to God, Lord, save me. And if you'd like to know more about what that means, we would love to talk to you as soon as the service is over. But here's a caution and concern for all those who have grown up in this church, for children, for our youth. You can grow up with God's word being near you, hearing it all the time, knowing it, and yet for this word not to penetrate your heart and be inside of you. It is not enough for this word to be near you. It's not enough even for this word to be on your lips. Whether you memorize it or know how to recite it. It must be so in your heart that it causes you, enables you to call on the Lord to save you. If you have not done so, I encourage you to do so today. Because God's salvation is near in the sense that it is available for all who would call on the name of the Lord. Those who seem that are far off and those who think that they no longer need it because they're good enough to do it. All need the salvation. But lastly, this salvation of God being near to us shows up in the most surprising place. You know where it shows up? In the preaching of the word. This is where Paul takes us when in verses 14 through 15. He says, he helps us understand how does this work? How is someone going to call on the name of the Lord? And Paul is working through the sort of the logical steps, like a reverse engineering of this process of God's salvation. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? In order to call on the Lord to save you, you must believe. And Paul says, well, how are they going to believe if they have not heard? Like, ah, yes. Uh, someone needs to make sure that this message is heard. And Paul says, well, how are they going to hear if someone is not preaching? It's like, oh, yes, we need preachers. How is someone going to preach if they're not sent? In verse 14 Paul helps us see that in order for any of us to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, we must actually encounter this word in the preaching and the proclamation of it. Friends, the salvation of God's people is here in the preaching of this word. And wherever it is preached, and whenever it is preached, God's salvation is here. This is why we want to equip each other with the gospel. It's one of the books we encourage you to, to, to read and refresh on is a book called What is the Gospel? Some of you are reading that with others in this congregation. 
people's salvation is dependent on hearing a clear presentation of the gospel. How will they believe if they do not hear? This is why we want to equip you and send you. We want to equip one another and send each other out to make this gospel clear because people's salvation is dependent on the hearing of this message with clarity. This is why we also give a percentage of our contributions as a church to support missionaries and ministry organizations that help this gospel be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. To be proclaimed where we cannot physically go. Because God ordained that his salvation would spread through people hearing this message of the gospel proclaimed. Friends, this gospel, this news of God's salvation is present wherever it is proclaimed. And Paul says, the spreading of this news is a beautiful thing. He quotes from Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach a good news. Friends, in Isaiah, this quote is given in the context when God says, I will restore my people. After the exile, I will restore my people. And Paul says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Oh, friends, wherever the word about Jesus is proclaimed, there it becomes possible for people to believe because faith comes from hearing the word about Jesus. God's salvation is here. Because it's near you, because it brings God's word into your heart, so you can believe and confess Christ because it's available for all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And it's here whenever and wherever it is preached and proclaimed so that people can call on the name of the Lord. Well, friends, this is just part one. It's the longest. Here's part two. God's salvation solicits our response. God's salvation solicits our response. And this is the past the part that Paul emphasizes in the remaining verses in the text we've read. From verse 16 to verse 21. From the previous point, from the first point, we've seen that God's salvation is here. But simply to be here and you not to respond to it would be tragic. So Paul unfolds for us three cautions about responding to this gospel. And here the first one, mere hearing is not enough. We see this in this verse 16, mere hearing is not enough. Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The gospel calls us to an obedient faith. Mere hearing is not enough. And this is the amazing miracle that God performs in our hearts to cause our hearts to believe when we hear the word about Jesus. But it is possible for hearing to come alone. And this is a sad reality of verse 18. Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? If verse 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ... Verse 18 says, but have they, the Jews, have they not heard? 
And Paul says, of course they have. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's true that faith comes from hearing. But sometimes hearing can come alone. And when it does, it will not benefit us for salvation. And this is the danger of many churchgoers. This is the danger of many who may hear lots of sermons and lots of Bible lessons, hearing so much about the Word of God, and yet without putting one's trust in Christ for salvation. Friend, could this be said of you this morning? They've heard. You've heard. Just like Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the amazing part in Isaiah is that is the intro to the great servant song of Isaiah 53. Before Isaiah would even declare the gospel message, he gives this warning, Lord, who's going to believe it? To hear is not enough. What a tragic thing to hear and still not believe. Could this be said of you this morning? But there's a second caution. Mere understanding is not enough. Paul tells us that Israel not only had the privilege of hearing, but also of understanding what God was planning to do. Look at verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And then he says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a, a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. Now here's the sad part. Israel was told by the Lord of what they will do, how they will act rebelliously, how they will disobey and reject the Lord. And Israel was also told that God will take his salvation and give it to the nations. They knew it all. And yet, it was not enough to cause them to respond to the Lord with an obedient faith. How did God make the Israelites jealous and angry? Well, we were told in verse 20 that God would take initiative to be found by those who did not seek him and to reveal himself to those who did not ask for him. Look at verse 20. Then Isaiah, so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Once again, we see here God's effective, sovereign will on full display. God took the initiative. God worked effectually in nations that did not ask of the Lord and God brought them in and called him his people. Israel was told all about this. And yet, it would not move their hearts. It would not move the needle of their faith. Israel understood all this. And yet... They kept remaining disobedient. Because hearing is not enough and understanding it is not enough. 
The target, the third caution, the target is an obedient heart that believes. A target is an obedient heart that believes. This is what Israel lacked. Actually, it was worse. Look at verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here we have the climax of Paul's indictment of Israel that he started from chapter 9. Why did Israel uh, fail? Is it God's fault? Is it his fault that Israel did not respond to the Lord? And here it is, verse 21. It's not God's fault. God has been holding out his hand to his people in the offer of salvation. Because hearing the message of God's salvation will do you no good unless you respond with an obedient faith. Friends, disobedience shows that God's word has not penetrated our hearts. Remember what the righteousness by faith promised in verse 8? The word is near you, on your mouth, in your heart. But we get to verse 21. And to Israel, it's still not there. They're still disobedient. God's salvation brings his word into our hearts. We confess publicly because we first believe. And when God calls and holds out his hands towards us, obedient hearts respond by putting their trust in God. When people call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It is evidence that God's word has penetrated their hearts. God is sovereign in salvation. Yet, sinners remain responsible for how they respond to the gospel. This is why when we share the gospel, we must tell people that they must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Hearing this news of the gospel is not good enough without giving an invitation, without challenging people. Would you respond to this gospel? And how sad is this picture? How humbling is this picture? A sovereign God holding out his hands, offering salvation to his own people. And they remain obstinate, stubborn, disobedient, rebellious, and it's not even about the preacher. When Jesus came to share the gospel to the people he came to share with in his time, at one point in the gospel of John, Jesus describes himself as the light. And this is how the gospel of John begins to describe Jesus. The light came to, into the world. And in John chapter 12, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then John says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's not in the power of the preacher. It's not in the presence of miracles. 
It's not even in the person of the preacher, of who the preacher is. I mean, here is Jesus himself preaching this gospel. He's the one doing the crusade. And yet, people still disbelieved, rejected. And all John can say is, oh, the word of the Lord has not failed. People are responsible. Here's the Lord with his hands open over and over again, even to the point where God's own very son was physically present among us, acting powerfully, extending salvation, calling on people to be saved, calling on them to respond, to believe in the light, and here they are. They don't want to believe. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter even who the preacher is. It doesn't matter how eloquent he is. It doesn't matter how clear the gospel presentation is. At the end of the day, people are responsible to respond. Some will, some will not. God is sovereign, and yet people are responsible. The big question is, on which side are you? Why has Israel failed? The blame is not God, not with him, not with his word, but the is- with the Israelites who continue to respond with disobedience. Oh, friends, for those of us who are believers and are Christians and are fearful in our evangelism, take courage. If they've rejected Jesus and his gospel presentation, they will reject yours. If they've believed Jesus and his gospel presentation, they will believe yours. It's not in your power or mine to solicit, to cause a response. Preach the gospel, make it known, make it clear. But also, we must make it very clear that every sinner is responsible for how they respond. Because we have a God who continues to have his hands open and call sinners to come to him And hearing is not enough. Understanding is not enough. What is required in responding to God's salvation is an obedient heart that believes in the one God sent for the salvation of his people. I ask you to consider today, have you responded? Let's pray.